Welcome to the Sound Words Podcast, where it's our goal to help Christians love and live out God's Word. I'm Pastor Aaron Nicholson, and today I'd like to talk about motives. By definition, a motive is a reason for doing something. A student may be motivated to study hard to earn a degree, an employee may work hard to receive a paycheck, or an athlete may train intensely to receive a medal. But sometimes a motive can be hidden. You can deceive someone or even delude yourself as to your true motive. We call this an ulterior motive. It can be difficult or impossible to discern whether someone has an honest or ulterior motive, but this is not the case with God. He knows our hearts. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. To get God's discernment and to reveal our motives, we need to go to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's what we find when we come to Matthew 6. Like a skillful surgeon, Jesus cuts to reveal and test motives. In Matthew 6, Jesus was directly challenging the motives of the scribes and Pharisees. He was calling out their ulterior motives, their shallow, self-righteous motives, and calling people to true righteousness. A few verses earlier, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus said to his Jewish audience, "...unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven." See, on the outside, the scribes and Pharisees looked extremely good. Scribes devoted their entire lives to studying, interpreting, and teaching Jewish law. Pharisees held that all Jews should observe the 613 laws in the Torah plus their own oral tradition. And like the Pharisee in the parable Jesus told, they might fast twice a week and pay tithes of all they get, Luke 18.11. But also like a whitewashed tomb that appears white and clean on the outside and on the inside is full of dead man's bones, The Pharisees were externally righteous, but inwardly sinful. And that's why in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He says, Beware or take heed that you do not practice your righteousness before men. If you're wondering what that looks like, he goes on to give three examples and two possible motives for each one. The examples are in connection with giving, praying, and fasting. First, let's look at giving. Matthew 6, 2, Jesus says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The Jews were trained from their earliest days to be merciful and charitable. The Mosaic law commanded the Israelites to give to the orphan and widow, the stranger and the poor. Deuteronomy 15:11 says, "For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land." But instead of obeying the law to please the Lord, these Jews were motivated by earthly praise. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They wanted the pat on the back, the glory, and the honor for their public giving. And notice what Jesus says about their reward. He says, they have their reward in full. 
See, charitable giving motivated by man's praise will yield a shallow, short-lived, and superficial reward. I like what Pastor John MacArthur says when he says, when we give to please men, our only reward will be that which men can give. That puts it into perspective, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. If you were to give to be noticed and someone thought more highly of you for a day, a week, a year, is that temporary reward worth forfeiting God's eternal reward? Is man's praise ever worth it? So what should our giving look like instead? Well, Matthew 6, 3 through 4 says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This expression, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, refers to something uh, refers to doing something spontaneously, with no special effort or show. In other words, just as we're not to tell others about our giving, there is a sense where we're not even to tell ourselves about our giving, because self-consciousness can quickly turn into self-righteousness. We're not to make a big deal out of it. Give simply, give privately. Now, is Jesus saying that we should never give in public situations? Should we never include our name in an online GoFundMe donation or attend a public fundraiser? That's up to each of us individually, uh, between you and God, because hypocrisy begins on the inside. That's where God judges. Man tries to interpret intentions, but God sees the heart. And just on a personal note, I've, I've been tremendously encouraged to see Christian giving happen in the church. I've seen believers pay large medical bills, debts, and give large gifts. Um, Like Paul, when he tells the Corinthians about how the Macedonians gave in the midst of their affliction and poverty, it's convicting and encouraging. And I imagine uh, if you're listening to this right now, you've seen the same thing in the church and you've been encouraged by the same thing. Uh, We can also recognize that while it's biblical to be discreet, No true act of righteousness can be kept entirely hidden. Still, our motivation for giving should never be anything less than God's glory. After all, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 So let's look at Jesus' next example. He talks about the motivations behind prayer. Matthew 6.5 says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You know, prayer was a critical part of Jewish life. They were God's chosen people entrusted with the oracles of God, Romans 3, 2. Of all the people, they should have known how to pray, but they didn't. Over time, their prayers became ritualized, monotonous, and full of hypocrisy. In classical Greek, a hypocrite was an actor on a stage, a pretender, a person who plays a role. And in each of the three scenarios that Jesus gives, giving, praying, and fasting, he commands us not to be like the hypocrites who pretend. And these hypocrites loved to have their prayers heard. They weren't content to kneel in the privacy of their own homes, but instead they deliberately left their home to be seen in the synagogue and on the street corners and in public places where they knew there would be a crowd. 
You know, what's interesting is that praying on a street corner would not necessarily be unusual for a Jew in Jesus' day. Um, They were to pray three times per day, every day, in the morning, noon, and afternoon. And this would happen wherever you were, whether you're at work, at home, or out and about. You were just to pray at the appointed time. So a devout Jew would commonly stop to pray at a street corner if that's where he was at the appointed time. However, the word Jesus uses here in Matthew 6, platia, is not your typical narrow street corner, but a wide street or a major street. In other words, the hypocrites love to pray where they would have the largest audience. They would plan to be at this wide intersection during the appointed times of prayer so they could be seen by the crowds. In contrast, Jesus says in verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your inner room is a small room in your house, possibly the closet or a bedroom. The idea is to go to your most private room, shut the door, pray to your Father in secret. In contrast to the hypocrites, pray privately where you won't be tempted to show off or be influenced by other people around you. And this makes sense to us because after all, you have a personal relationship with God. It's not a group relationship. He wants your prayers. And this private communion is such a privilege. How can it be that we can go to the creator of the universe and tell him our praise and let our requests be made known to God and he hears us? Now, at this point, you might be asking, okay, Aaron, you pray publicly all the time, and other pastors and teachers at church pray. Is there no place for public prayer in our worship services or at Bible studies or before meals or in other public settings? And again, the issue is the heart. Scripture is replete with examples of prophets, apostles, and even Jesus praying publicly. The issue is never the audience, the time of day, or the location, but rather the motives of the heart. So you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, what is my motive when I pray? While I want to be clear and contextual with what I pray, I have to ask, am I praying to impress others with my theological vocabulary or am I praying to God? Am I praying to move people a certain way? Am I praying out of habit or am I praying to go through the motions? Or am I praying because I want to talk to my father? I want to be obedient, and I believe he hears and answers my prayer. Along the lines of praying out of habit, Jesus addresses this when he says in Matthew 6, 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Meaningless repetition refers to idle, thoughtless chatter. Like pagan religions in Jesus' day, many religions today still use this type of meaningless babble in their prayers. But what about coherent babble? Uh, How many of us are guilty of praying without thinking about what we're saying? Think of the way we often start and end our prayers. You know, dear Lord, thank you for this day. Or dear Lord, bless this food to our bodies. Or in Jesus' name, amen. The danger of repetition is that we can easily slip into mindless habit, and we have to fight the tendency to check out. We have to consider our words, our attitude, and our motives when we pray to our Almighty God. And praise God, He is there when we are weak, when we don't know how to pray. 
The Spirit of God intercedes for us. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says, For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In Matthew 6, 16, after Jesus delves further into the subject of prayer and even provides an example of godly prayer in what is famously called the Lord's Prayer, he moves to the final example for testing the motives, and that is the example of fasting. In Matthew 6, 16, he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The first thing we notice is that fasting is assumed. Jesus says, whenever you fast. For the Jews, there was a command to fast in Leviticus 23, 27, in connection with the Day of Atonement. It says, on exactly the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, that phrase, humble your souls, is a Hebrew expression that included forsaking food as an act of self-denial. It was a national fast, and it occurred one time a year as part of the Day of Atonement. While fasting was commanded for the Jews, Scripture does not command Christians today to fast. God does not require it or demand it. Nonetheless, we can see that fasting is spoken of favorably throughout Scripture. Many Old Testament believers fasted, such as Moses, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, and David, along with New Testament believers, such as John the Baptist, Paul, and of course, Jesus. And what's interesting is the Bible never records fasting for practical reasons, such as to lose weight or improve mental clarity. Um, It also never claims that fasting gives one a heightened religious experience, visions, or special awareness. Fasting is always connected with seasons of need and prayer. Think of David. After he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murder against Uriah, the Lord caused his son to be very sick. As a result, David fasted, wept, and lay on the ground all night. After the child died, he explained to his servants what his motive was. In 2 Samuel 12, 22, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. Fasting can be useful and beneficial if the motive is in the right place. But too often, Christians today see fasting as a dieting method or even a way to punish the body. And instead, just like going into your inner room and shutting the door to pray, Believers should consider fasting as a way to remove distractions and focus completely on God. Now, for the Jews, fasting became a hypocritical show of devotion. Their motivation was not to focus on the Lord or express their dependence on Him, but rather to gain the admiration of others. They would make it obvious they were fasting. They would wear old, dirty clothes, dishevel their hair, and cover themselves with dirt and ashes. One commentator even records that some would use makeup in order to look pale and sickly. But in contrast, Jesus said in verse 17 and 18, When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Once again, Jesus condemns the external acts of righteousness when the motive is man's praise. He told them to groom themselves, wash their face, and act normal. Don't attract unnecessary attention to your fasting. Let your fasting be noticed by God, 
and by God alone, and he will reward you. So in each of these three examples we've looked at, Jesus highlights two kinds of motivations. Number one, a motivation that seeks man-given, shallow, and temporary rewards, like attention, praise, and honor from men. And two, a motivation that seeks God-given, magnificent, and eternal rewards. So now you might be wondering, well, what are these rewards? Well, Jesus does not specifically go into detail about these rewards here in this passage. He could be referring to the judgment seat of Christ or Bema seat judgment in Romans 14, 10 through 12 and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, another episode for another day possibly. But we can conclude at least three things about these rewards from our passage in Matthew 6. Number one, these rewards are from God, not from man. They are given by the one who has created everything, the one who gives every good thing given and every perfect gift, James 1.17, the one who promises eternal life. Number two, we can notice that these rewards are given in the future. It says your father will reward you. While there are undoubtedly many immediate benefits to godly giving, praying, and fasting, the full reward for righteous deeds will come from God in the future in heaven. And number three, the rewards God gives are eternal rather than temporal. When you do a good deed to be noticed by man, the joy of your reward fades quickly. But when you do a good deed for your father, your reward will never fade away. Jesus declares this truth in the next three verses. Matthew 16, 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? What is your motive for doing what you do? Are you living for the Lord in your private life as well as your public life? Are you praying, reading, memorizing, meditating on God at home or just when you're at church? Are you a Sunday Christian or an everyday Christian? Are you struggling with these things? If you are, then I would encourage you to first receive the forgiveness for your sins and receive a new heart by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, then the Spirit changes your wanter. He gives you new desires and new motivations. A believer in Jesus Christ is no longer interested in living for themselves or others, but for God. Then if you've already become a Christian, grow. Grow in your love for and knowledge of the word. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Just as a baby needs milk, you as a Christian need the word of God in order to grow strong and mature in your faith. So get into the word. Form a plan. Carve out private time in your day to read the Bible and grow from it. And then pray. Pray for God to convict you of selfish motives. Pray for clarity. Pray for a burning desire to love Jesus Christ more than the things of this world. May the Lord purify our motives as we seek to be more like him. Then like David, may we cry out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. Thanks for listening to the Soundwords podcast. Hope you have a great day.